Over 130 residential schools operated in Canada. The first federal residential school began around 1883, the last closed in 1996. These schools, predominantly funded and operated by the Government of Canada and Roman Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, and United Churches, were created to enforce the adoption of European traditions, languages, and lifestyles by First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children. To better understand the history of these schools and what it meant to Indigenous communities, we invited residential school attendees and their families to share their stories and experiences. For some, these stories are a moment of healing. For others, a chance to talk about the history and the system. All are important to preserve for future generations. My name is Ryan Funk, and with my co-host Lisa Muswagen, we followed these stories for We Stand Together. Dance, my name is Lisa Muswagen, and welcome to today's episode. I first want to take a moment to acknowledge the land that we are on. We are on the Treaty 1 territory, home of the Anishinaabe, Métis, Cree, Oji Cree, and Soto. Thank you so much, Lisa. Uh, we Stand Together is a project where we hear the stories of residential school survivors so that the atrocities that took place never happened again. And an opportunity for newcomers to hear these stories and bridge the communities of Indigenous and newcomers. Uh, we have our guest today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Mabel Horton, Tigawin, Miti, Do, Winners, Winsvigason, Mstawayasi, Rosi, Bisinturti. Fantastic. So, why don't you share your story with us, please? I'm 73 years old. I'm from, like I said in my introduction, Nistawasi Cree Nation, which is Nelson House, for those that don't know the um, indigenous name. And uh, I, um, I was asked to speak to the new people that are coming to our country so they can experience um, our country as it is and know what, what had happened in the past and not just for themselves, but for, for mainly our people. That's why we're doing this project. And I think it's important to know different experiences of the uh, survivors, although I don't like the word survivor myself for the residential schools, because we're still surviving. And um, we've um, lost many already. I, I'll start from my day school, which was in Nelson House, Mr. Wasi Nation. And that's been also in part of the compensation packages for day school. So that, that was mine for the uh, Roman Catholic part of things. So I was there till I was, uh, I was there till grade six at the time, because there was no high schools there uh, in my community. And then I went to Guy Hill Residential School near the PAW, OCN. OCN is short for Opaskara Nation. And so I was there for a year, and then I came down to Winnipeg to the, I understand it's one of, one of two maybe, but one for sure of the schools in the city in Winnipeg that are residential schools. And they were for children, like I said, from grade um, eight to 12. And so we were in our teens, and, but not unlike the uh, schools. The first one I went to was Guy Hill, and I don't know how many of the new people hear about it, they must have heard about it because of the attention we got when the Pope came to Canada this summer and all the stuff that follow. I could make lots of comments on that, but I won't for this, for this occasion. And um, to recognize that 
the, especially the isolated schools and with the little ones, I mean, they were young as three, four years old that came to these schools and away from their parents. Like you don't realize this till you're a parent yourself. And I left when I was 10 and it didn't really hit me till my daughter turned 10. I thought, oh my goodness, you know, this is how old she was. This is how old I was when I left. That was uh, our day school in RC Point, it's called. There's three uh, areas of my community, so that was one of them. And then I was sent to Guy Hill, I, I mentioned, for a year, and then to Winnipeg from grade 8 to 12. And it, it was right in the heart of the city, uh, St. Barnes Dancehall School on Academy Road. For those that are living in Winnipeg will know it's a, it's a, it was a nice place by the river. And that was uh, quite a few years we were there. I mean, the whole, the whole, I think it was 58 to 71, something like that. But I was there from 62 to 67. There's lots of people from the north. There's lots of people, some from the northwest of um, Manitoba and lots from southern, uh, northwestern Ontario came here. And there were about, I think the number, I'm getting all my numbers mixed up, but I believe 679 of us went through, through that school. And, and towards the end, it turned to be like a boarding school. So the students could go to the city schools, which uh, I'm sure some of my colleagues had mentioned from their experience. So, yeah, so that was good. Like for me, my parents really wanted us to be educated so we could have good jobs and all that stuff. And they were always encouraging us and always visited us where we were. Because we weren't, well, we left in September, some of us went home in December, and of course, summertime. So they made a point of coming to see us. In Guy Hill, I had one brother there, he's now deceased. And in, in Winnipeg, I had two siblings. And we only could see each other on Sundays, in the parlor, sitting nice and pretty, you know, with a <laughs> knees crossed and everything. No hugs, you know, just uh, visiting each other trying to not giggle too much, but we're just sitting in chairs, it was awkward. But uh, at least I knew they were in that area. And so my older brother, Fred, he, he just passed this um, August 1st, he was 80. And uh, he had many friends, including the Fontaines, the one that uh, led our group, the St. Boyer's National School Legacy Group that I belong to at the moment. I'm one of the co-presidents. And we're doing a memorial, you probably heard about that one, and it was uh, advertised and uh, very publicized uh, this um, Orange Shirt Day. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it. But anyway, it was quite an honor to work with the late Theodore Fontaine. And just two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we named the park after him at the back of the, um, our, our school grounds, basically. I guess it was called Wellington Park, which I didn't know at the time or in the future. But yeah, so that was a great honor. I'm just trying to think of what more stuff you want me to add to, to that. Uh, I guess maybe when we're looking at the history of residential schools, um, for newcomers coming in, what is kind of a piece of information or something about that experience that you want them to know and be aware of? For newcomers, I'm, I'm a nurse background. And I've been retired now, it'll be 10 years next month, which is amazing, because I'm still working on committees and to do with health and my background. 
and uh, it's good for the communities to know. And I've heard anecdotally that our professionals that come from overseas to Canada, especially to First Nation communities, are working with First Nation communities, like say in Winnipeg, and it doesn't take them long to get that attitude, meaning racist attitude, and maybe three months, and they're in that groove saying, oh yeah, that, you know, the drunken people from Main Street type of thing. So it's unfortunate, and I know a team of my colleagues that are also doctors and nurses, they are um, always talking, and I go to many international conferences where we uh, are now addressing racism, especially in the health, health field. And I think it's important for the newcomers to know our history, where uh, we had to go to school. You know, they hear horrible stories of our kids being forced to go to school and uh, taken away. Uh, my dad never went to school, and he passed when he was 89. But I guess when it, the time came for him to go, he was all dressed in a little suit. I could just see him now. And then they were going to the plane, and he took off. <laughs> and he, he just stayed there, didn't come back. <laughs> so that's why he didn't, he didn't go to recession school. But um, my mother never went either, and she's passed on too. But anyway, um, yeah, for the newcomers to know that it's not just... Um, them having a hard time to come to our country and as we welcome them, like we did in the past with the, um, the um, first settlers. I think it's important to know. And uh, also, I think it's important to know, and I've been recommending this book that uh, people should read, and it's, it's a must. It's called Braiding Sweetgrass, and it's a beautiful book. And the, the one that captured me was the chapter on it, the language itself. I speak fluently my language. And um, Robin Wall, the author, was talking about, and she's a professor in, um, near Harvard there. Anyway, she was saying, from the word go, from the get-go, when we first speak our languages, it's the total way, total different way of looking at things. Because we believe in, in animate and animate objects. And which is verb, and it's all verb action words. Whereas the English language is nouns, and like a lake would be a lake, you know, but for us it would be a living thing. Mm -hmm. So just that difference, I thought, of course, you know, that's the way it's been. And that's why I think we always clash with the language, and um, we make sure our elders, and uh, when I help, I call my, uh, myself a helper, and oichihuyu. Uh, and to try and explain these things to um, non-Indigenous peoples, because I work a lot with the research community. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, we try and help that way. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And for newcomers or um, uh, individuals like myself, what are some ways that we can be better allies to the Indigenous community and better neighbors? Ah, you could live on a reserve for a week. <laughs> <laughs> or a month, just to get to know that, um, what, what we go through. I really like going home um, as m much as I can, which is an Istwazi creation from near Thompson, just to realize how lucky we are, if you want to call it lucky, in the cities or the towns, you know, with running water, sidewalks, and um, sand when you're not skidding all over the place or trying to avoid the dogs running around type of thing, you know. It's good to... Um, to be there and to experience it because you know people can talk from their mansions in Ottawa or wherever and not understand so I think it's important that 
that they do come. And even with our, uh, because of the intergenerational trauma and all the suicides that we have in the, in the North or wherever, not, not even in the North, even the non-Indigenous generation with all, their, with all the issues that are happening, it's good to, um, to be aware of that and to try and help. So the newcomers that come don't um, take it for granted that you know, this is the way it is. I can say a few things about Vancouver area because that's where my son lives and the family. And I feel I'm not in my country because it's, it's just so many other foreigners there. And then they don't even smile at you <laughs> and to see how lovely it is to be in this beautiful country. And speaking their own language, whereas we're losing ours, I'm going, damn it, you know, like we could be a bit better than that. Or people to understand that we had lost our languages, that we weren't supposed to speak our language to begin with. And so, um, but I was one of the lucky ones. So yeah, there's so many things we can talk about in that, but um, yeah. So what does, um, I guess to explain to our newcomers, what does reconciliation mean to you? To me, reconciliation, or to them, uh, is to um, reconcile as peoples and uh, that we're not any different actually. They're escaping something and then we're here, we're trying to also escape a few things, all the trauma that we had faced. And I think just to work together and try and, I mean, it sounds sweet and lovely, but it's, it's hard work to try and understand each other and, you know, especially with people bringing their own customs and then we don't want to be a melting pot and, and be all the same. I, I see the difference and I appreciate the difference, the foods, the languages and the, the beliefs that people have in spirituality. But I think just to understand each other and um, be aware of each other that, you know, and we travel, like they say, the wampong belt, you know, when traveling across and, and try and help each other out that way. Yeah. And I think to begin with the, the younger ones, but they also would have conflict. Uh, once they are in, in the country because they're leaving their old traditions and adopting new ones and there's peer pressure and ah, uh, we could go on. <laughs> yeah. Um, sometimes, um, like, the, our newcomers, they, they under, like, they see what we're going through, but I guess they don't understand what, like, healing is, you mm -hmm. know? Maybe we can explain that a little bit more to elaborate coming from this whole process or this whole mm -hmm. systematic um, uh, the whole system that was like put on indigenous people, like, like how can you explain what healing looks like? Well, we're going through healing, that's for sure, all of us. And um, I know last year when they, they found the little ones, the, the 215, everyone's devastated in the world, not just us. But I think that's, a, again, that word, because that's an English term again, the people that had gone to residential school felt it most. And, and then, felt it hard to this day and it'll keep going because it's so sad to have seen all these little ones not go anywhere, not, not go home. And now even just the process of even finding them, you know, trying to trace where their, uh, the DNA samples and where their relatives are and oh, it's really, really sad. But um, healing for the f people that come to our land to understand us, like, it, like we said, it's been generations and generations of um, uh, settlers and being colonized. And again, not only us, but you know, all the other indigenous peoples in the world. Because at, at the moment, like I was saying, I help being with research mainly and um, 
we meet the other indigenous peoples like the Maori and the people from Australia and so on. And it's wonderful that when we get together, we talk, we know what we're talking about, we feel it, we uh, experienced it, and we're trying to help as well. And we're getting more people educated in our, well, let's say educated in the academia, academia. But um, some of our elders have said, yes, children, you know, they call us uh, children, grandchildren. And uh, go learn about the white man's way, all the research and all the education, but always come back to your people and help your people. And I think that's important because I think now people are starting to realize, oh yeah, we're not so silly and not scientific after all. We are very scientific as a peoples, starting from astronomy and our mythologies and legends and how we had to hunt and conserve nature and, and use all the parts of the animal. And yeah, there's lots to know about yeah, us. Just a different approach to exactly. understanding the world. Yeah, yeah. And again, a lot of our people are going, you know, again, with the, the trauma that people have suffered and the addictions and even now with all the meth and whatever's going on just to kill that pain, there's a reason for that and for people to understand that we're not just, just living on Main Street or wherever just for the fun of it or in bus shelters. There's a reason for that and there's lots of pain. So people have to understand that and not, you know, shy away from helping each other. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and having this conversation with us. I, I think it's so important and healthy to have these conversations so that we, at least for my, myself, a better understanding of the history and present so that we can work together and, you know, make a society where we all can succeed, right? I know, I know. Yeah, and like I said, the concept of the Main Street drunken Indian. I think I, I think it's still there, you know, because people look out their windows and down the street. But I, just from my personal side of things, uh, we, we can do it. Like I said, I'm a, a nurse and my my parents had encouraged us all to to succeed in a field or other. So my brother was an engineer. My, sis, my two sisters are social workers uh, and, and another electrician and a teacher and a professor and lawyer and um, myself as a nurse. And um, we, I have um, two children and two grandchildren. And this Christmas, we're gonna go to the West and visit my son. So he's a neurologist. And I'm so proud to, to say that because like I said, people were saying, oh, can you do it? Can these you know, young ones do it? Of course we can. So um, it's just wonderful to see. And our daughter, she's um, the other reverse of health. She's traditional medicine a yoga instructor, tarot card reader. <laughs> so they're all different, but they're all in the health field, and I'm so pleased with them. Wow, you must be so proud. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I want to thank you and appreciate it in this cold day that we came. <laughs> well, thank you again for coming. We are really grateful for your story. Um, we just feel it's, it's so important for our listeners, and, and once again, Egosane, and thank you. Thank you so much for uh, watching. It's so important to hear these stories and understand the history and traumas there, but also the traumas and the effects that we're still seeing today. And that's why we will continue to have these conversations and to educate ourselves and build amazing communities together. 
So thank you. You Multicultural is located on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the national homeland of the Red River Métis.